on today's story beat. If there's 10 people or 10,000 at the gig, what you have to remember is every single one of them put their hand in their pocket, got out money and paid to see you and you owe them. And I just went, it went into me like it was the Bible. I think it was the best bit of advice I ever had. And this is how I treat it. This is my job, I take it serious. And it's my job to make you happy, not your job to make me happy, my job to make you happy. This is Story Beat with Steve Cuton, a podcast for the creative mind. Story Beat explores how masters of creativity develop and produce brilliant works that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuton. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, I'm beyond thrilled to welcome my guest today, the legendary, highly influential rock and roll superstar, Susie Quattro. Susie made her stage debut playing bongos in her father's jazz band, the Art Quattro Trio. At 14, she co-founded the all-girl band, The Pleasure Seekers, with her elder sister, Patty, playing a bass guitar that was as tall as she was. Susie quickly became the band's lead singer and front person. They successfully toured for seven years before changing their name to Cradle. The group was then seen by the successful music producer, Mickey Most. He offered Susie a solo contract, which eventually led her to working with the hit-making songwriters, Nikki Chin and Mike Chapman, resulting in her first huge hit, Can the Can, which went to number one in Great Britain, Europe, Japan, and Australia, and sold two and a half million copies worldwide. Susie's sold over 55 million records. Among her numerous worldwide hits are 48 Crash, Devilgate Drive, The Wild One, She's in Love with You, If You Can't Give Me Love, and Stumbling In, a duet with Chris Norman. From 1977 to 79, Susie played Leather Tuscadero opposite Henry Winkler and Ron Howard in the hit TV series Happy Days. Other TV appearances include Minder, Dempsey and Makepeace, Absolutely Fabulous, and Midsummer Murders. Among Susie's many other creative endeavors, she made her critically acclaimed West End debut in 1986, playing Annie Oakley in Annie Get Your Gun. She wrote music and lyrics with Shirley Roden for the Tallulah Bankhead musical Tallulah Who, in which Susie starred. She's even had her own radio shows on BBC Radio 2 since 1999. Her best-selling autobiography, Unzipped, released in 2007, was turned into Susie's one-woman show, which premiered at London's Hippodrome. In 2016, Susie released a book of poetry called Through My Eyes. In 2022, she released a second volume of poetry entitled Through My Heart, which I recently read and can highly recommend to you. Through My Heart is powerfully personal, moving, intense, and quite deep. Susie writes with passion and conviction very much from her heart. Her first novel, The Hurricane, was released in 2017, and she's already at work on the sequel. Susie continues to tour and release new albums, including 2019's No Control, a collaboration with her son Richard Tucky, who co-wrote most of the tracks and played guitar. On her latest album, Uncovered, released on Sun Records, Susie covers six classic soul, rock, and pop songs. The excellent documentary, Suzy Q, was released in 2019, and because of the attention it's received, she's now signed to do a movie of her life. 
Susie remains a major creative force to be reckoned with. Her famous quote says it all. I will retire when I go on stage, shake my ass, and there is silence. In 2016, Susie received an honorary Doctor of Music degree from Cambridge University, making her officially Dr. Quattro. So for all those reasons and many more, I am deeply honored to have the extraordinarily multi-talented rock icon Susie Quattro join me today. Dr. Quattro, welcome to StoryBeat. Nice to be here. Did you make an appointment? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel good as if we go through the show and I, I start to feel ill. I know who to talk to. <laughs> All right. So you essentially turned pro at 14. You left school and started to tour with the Pleasure Seekers. That's an astonishingly young age for anybody to do that sort of thing. For many, music is thought of as a calling. Is it so for you? Yeah, it is. Um, I say it too. I say it all the time. It is a job because my father taught me that way, that it's a profession. He, but he put that in my head. But it's something that you can't not do, if I can put it that way. You're you're compelled. Yeah, I'm an artist. I'm an artist. Let's put it that way. Music seemed to be calling the loudest, but I'm an, I'm an artiste. I have to create, entertain, and communicate. I have to do that since a little girl. And clearly you found lots of outlets for that. I've seen a bit of footage on you and you previously stated that you knew you'd be successful. And I'm sure that you felt that deep in your bones, even before you were successful. Did you foresee any of the challenges to come at that same time? Did you know how difficult the road would be for you? Um, I knew from the age of a child when we did our family shows, five kids and my dad played and my mother sang. So it was one of those kind of families where everybody would go up and do a piece. Either you played or you did a sketch or you, you know, whatever you did. And I noticed from like the age of seven, as far as my memory goes, that whenever I got up to do whatever I was going to do, the room would stop. So in my little child brain, not that I could articulate it, but I, I remember thinking even that young, oh, oh, I can do this. And I did lots of different stuff. I would do a poem, I would do a dance, I would do hit the road jack. I would play something on the bungalow. So I knew I had the talent to hold an audience, but I couldn't have explained it. So yes, I knew very young that that was where my talent lay. You weren't shy about it either. Many kids are shy about getting in front of a group of people. You weren't shy at all. You know, the first gig that I did when I was 14, my first gig in the rock and roll band, and we knew three songs same three chords, really adventurous. Anyway, uh, the, the, the club owner did us a favor and put us on our first gig. And I remember distinctly standing up on that stage with the bass guitar and looking down, ready to go into my first song. And what flew through my head was, I'm home. The stage was for you. Yeah, it feels, I can't explain it any better than that. It feels natural to me. Like this is what I was put on this earth to do is to entertain people. Do you ever get nervous before a show? I get anxious. Like, okay, the biggest mistake, in my opinion, the biggest mistake a pro can make ever in this mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. to go out there and think, well, I'm going to kill him tonight. Uh-oh, danger, red flag. <laughs> I stand down there before and you can hear them shouting and screaming and clapping. And my attitude is, I hope they like me tonight. Mm -hmm. And then you cross the footlights and the whole thing, the whole game changes. Well, I think that's really yeah. important because as a performer, you've got to have a little bit of that edge or else you've given up, basically. Absolutely. You can, and you can't ever do a perfect show. You can do a pretty damn good show, but um, you should never rest on your laurels. Mm -hmm. Every audience is a new group of people. It's a new animal. 
and you have to tame them and send them home happy. And I know that you do. Uh, aside from the honorary doctorate, you had no actual formal education in music, did you? Oh, yes, I did. I had, um, I did have formal education. I can read, write, and play classical piano. I've got a very nice touch on piano. And I can read, write, and play percussion. Those are my two studied instruments. Ah. And then at 14, when we started the band, I was very slow to speak up. So I was given the bass guitar and I'm self-taught. But um, I, I always say it was a no-brainer. I was going to be a really good bass player because... My father gave me a 1957 Fender Precision. That was my first bass. Are you kidding me? It's gigantic. It's like, yeah, it's like giving a new driver a Rolls Royce. I mean, <laughs> you know, I had the best and I didn't know it was the best. I'm not going to pretend I did. And I honestly didn't know that there were a choice of sizes or this. All I said was, Dad, do you have a bass? Yes, I do. Here you go. Okay, so that's what I had to learn to play. So this is a, a you're not a really tall person, and this is a physically imposing instrument. It's a heavy, big instrument, yes? I know. Everybody says she plays this huge bass. I don't play a huge bass. It's a normal bass, and I'm a little bass player. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am curious about this. Has that ever caused you any kind of physical issues over the years, the fact that it's as big as you are, basically? I never thought about it because I'm the kind of person my mindset is, here's the bass, Susie. Okay, Dad, thanks, and off I go. I don't question it. The only problem was years, years later, <laughs> it's kind of a stupid story, but you asked. So I was ready to give birth to my second child, uh, and it was my second cesarean because the rule is when you've had one, you're going to have another one. Right. You know, that's how it is. And I was too small, so you're not going to be any bigger the next time around. And he was a big baby. So this time I stayed awake. First time was emergency. This time I stayed awake. And they went to, because I wanted to see one of my children being born. I missed the first one, out cold. And uh, they were going to put the um, epidural in me. 45 minutes later, she still could not get the needle in the lumbar region of my spine because of playing this bass like this since the age of 14, it had fused over. She wow. finally got it in. She finally got it in, but she said, good God. I said, yeah, that's the bass play with you when it's in. I said, yay. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of these. Even when I sit in the in the sun, I have to be up. If I drive, I have to be. So what it's done is given me wonderful posture, in actual fact. The bass has forced you to, to muscularly lean back a little bit. Oh, my arms are ridiculous. Look at that muscle there. You know, you got your calluses and I'm I'm, I'm very um, strong in the back region and, and the spine. I, I would think you would have to be to carry that thing around because when you, you watch you play, it's it's a huge thing on you. It's not like you say, it's a normal base, but you're a smaller person. I don't think of it. I, I tell you what, one time I came off stage and my husband was standing there watching and he's a big guy and I, I had to do something. So I Went, hold that a second. And he went, oh, he went down with the <laughs> <laughs> You sissy. <laughs> <laughs> so when I watch you and listen to you play, it is clear as a bell that you love what you do and that there's a lot of passion behind it. How important is passion for being an artist? I don't think you have any right to be an artist unless you have passion, because being an artist is passion, passion for what you do. My, my father, I keep quoting this because it's important. I was 16 and I'd been in the band for two years. And by that time, there were three quattro sisters in the band. My eldest sister, Arlene, on keyboards, Patty on guitar, me on bass, and my little sister hadn't joined yet. And my dad pulled me aside at the family home. And he said, uh, I want to talk to you, Susie, because he's been a musician all his life, only at night, but he worked for General Motors. And he said, um, it looks to me, tell me if I'm wrong, 
that you're going to do this for the rest of your life? And I said, no, you got it, Dad. I'm in the business. Done. He said, okay, then I have two bits of advice for you. And he didn't tell anybody else this. Pulled me aside. Strange. And I said, okay. He said, first of all, this is a profession. This is your job. I said, got that. And he said, second of all, if there's 10 people or 10,000 at the gig, what you have to remember is every single one of them put their hand in their pocket, got out money and paid to see you and you owe them. And I just went, it went into me like it was the Bible. I think it was the best bit of advice I ever had. And this is how I treat it. This is my job. I take it serious. And it's my job to make you happy. Not your job to make me happy. My job to make you happy. And I give it everything. Well, that's, and that's plain to see when you observe you perform. It's, you're all there. 110% you, really. It's all out. I'm going to ask you a question I ask lots of guests, which I find the answers fascinating to. What for you makes a good piece of music good? Why is something appeal to you that it's, this is good? I think for me, it's got to just plain and simple, touch me. I can go see the best act in the world and if they don't touch me, I don't want to see it. Piece of music's got to touch me. Movie, you got to touch me. It's got to be believable. That's the word I'm looking for. It's a gut feel, not an intellectual feel. No. And in fact, I got to insert a little story there because this goes along with what you just said. On my current album, The Devil and Me, which got the best critics of my entire career, my second album with my son, this illustrates this. We were locked down. So he was supposed to be on the road. I was supposed to be on the road. Lockdown, nothing. So I said, okay, and still I was getting depressed. The company has taken up the option for the next album after no control. That's right, the album. I built, luckily, in 219, a little studio in the gardens. So we had some place to work. So he went in there with the machines. I'm not a machine girl. And I sat on the patio with my little iPad and my little acoustic guitar and my lyric book. And that's how I learned to work a long time ago. So I'm sitting there. He's in the studio quite a ways away down the garden. And I'm working and he's working. And the door was left open. And out came this track. He had a basic uh, drum part, basic bass part, and a guitar part. And it's just wafting out. And I, before I could even get mad that it was interrupting my thoughts, I went, boing, <laughs> an arrow in my heart. Yeah. You know? And I went, what's that? Oh, my God. I think it woke up this, the, the, the Detroit in me. Anyway, I kind of went stunned. And in my brain, I thought, do not think. Do not think. So I pushed every thought away, kept it in my heart, like a zombie out to the studio, really. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, don't think, don't think, don't think. And I was a bit of a surprise. I walked in, he went, what are you doing? I said, I, what's that? And he said, it's just something I'm fooling around with. I said, do me a favor, quick, put me on the microphone, give me the headphones and play that. And I still didn't engage my brain. And he put it on. And the first four lines of the song, without thinking, came out with the lyrics in a voice I'd never used before. What kind of voice are you talking about? I guess it was kind of a Motown voice, soulful. The track is called My Heart and Soul, I Need You Home for Christmas. And I did the four lines and we both stopped and I went, what? Like, how did that happen? It's because I didn't think. I just felt. So it was pure nature taking over. And just a punchline to that story. We went in then and we did the uh, the proper tracks. And we finally got to the place where 
The whole track was done, strings, BVs, everything properly. And I'm putting my proper vocal on the finished track, ready to go to the record company. So that was a demo I'm talking about. So I'm in there and, you know, the studio's full and you get a little bit, every artist, I don't care how confident you are. You're kind of naked when you're doing something in the studio because just like before you step over the footlights, you're hoping it's good enough, you know. Sure. So I'm singing, I think it's going good. And my son's in there producing and he pushed the button down. He said, mom, you're not doing it. I said, what, not doing what? Of course you get defensive. You're not doing it. I said, what aren't I doing? What do you mean? What, what aren't you getting? And I'm getting embarrassed and angry. And he said, wait a minute, mom, wait, 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 wait. Do me a favor, listen. And he put the demo on and I got it immediately. And I went, ah. So what it was, was I was singing, Susie Quattro was putting down the vocal to the song. Right. So I went, give me a minute. Fantastic, give me a minute. I walked around the studio, let Susie Quattro go away, put myself back in that same frame of mind, walked back in and the song went boom. How, how clever of him to know. Exactly. Well, he could hear it and he's known you a long time. <laughs> and then I, I heard it myself. I went, oh my God, I'm not doing that. He said, no, you're not. I want to explore this for half a second. Susie Quattro, is she a character? Is she someone different than you? No, she is me. She's the performing side of me. The... The public persona of everything I am inside, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the older I get in my business, it's 58 years now. If you read my autobiography, it's written in two people, little Susie from Detroit and Susie Quattro. So they're both in me. But the more I do what I do, the more the two come together, you know? Right. I don't know how they merge. They do. But to keep sane, I separate little Susie from Detroit and Susie Quattro. And I have an ego room at home. An ego room an ego room. And when I want to go up there and be Susie Quattro, I am. Other than that, I'm little Susie from Detroit. There's a sign on the door. It says, ego room, mind your head. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a great double entendre, isn't it? <laughs> Explore for a moment your playing of the bass. Your bass lines as you well know, are killer. You play incredible bass lines. Is there anything that you've learned about playing the bass over the years that you wish you had known from the very beginning? I was lucky enough to kind of have a good feeling. Don't forget, I played piano and percussion. Percussion is a percussion instrument, and piano is also a percussive instrument. Sure. So that's where my brain lies. Weaned on Motown, you know? So I had the best. I mean, Jameson was the best. And within all that, when we used to do uh, family trips, we couldn't fly because too many kids. So we did a lot of driving, five kids in the car, my mom and dad in the front, big station wagon. Down we went from Detroit to Florida, whatever. And always we had sing songs. Right. And we all went to our natural harmonies. And my dad, he would always go into this boom, da doom, da doom, ba doom, doom, doom. And I always think to myself, damn it, you got the best part. So I'm a natural bass player, not a failed guitar player. And you got to make that difference. Failed guitar players play different. I never played with a pick in my life. It is skin on string. And it's the organic feeling of that. And I, I can only say what two or three different musicians have said to me that been in my band, if you want to explain. Uh, one of them was a drummer. And he said, we were talking about how we all play our instruments. And he said, Susie, the best compliment I can give you on bass is... Whatever you play is always correct. Hmm. Okay, good. That means it feels right. And then you can give nobody a better compliment. 
It, that's a very interesting, whatever you play is correct. So and I can, I can back that up now because Steve Cropper, who's on my Uncovered album, he plays on Midnight Hour and Dock of the Bay. And I gave him an award a few years ago and it was the first time I met him. And we got talking and big fan. And uh, I said to him, Steve, I have to share something with you. And he said, what's that? I said, there are two or three albums I jam with when I'm practicing, I jam. One of them is Otis Redding's and the other one is Santana. And every time I've ever jammed with Otis Redding's album, I play exactly the same bass lines as Donna Duck Dun. And I don't know why. And he said, he said, what, um, what my, he said the same thing. He said, Susie, Susie, you play them because they're correct. So that's what everybody says. So apparently there's correct. If it feels good, it must be right. There's another story with James Jameson. I was, uh, how was I, 17? And I was hanging around the Motown studio and we got in. We were just hanging there. And I ran down into the pit and Jameson's bass was there. And like the show off that I am, guilty, I picked it up and I started to play. And I was showing up and playing away, doing my best riffs, you know, da, da, da. and the button on the studio thing went down and it was Jameson. He said, hey, said, you're not bad for a white chick. And I said, thank you very much. And he said, but let me tell you something. It's not what you play. It's what you don't play that counts. And I went up. And from that day forward, I started to listen carefully to Jameson's bass lines. And he plays probably about a third of what you think you're hearing. It's a real trick to it. And I do the same. There's, those spaces are so important. And I, and I really learned from that. And I did incorporate that. My, my style is between jazz, boogie, and Jameson. Mm. You write about your poem, Between the Beat, which is what you're referring to, I think. You write, quote, everything, and I mean everything interesting happens between the beat. So pay attention. <laughs> you wrote that, right? And is that what you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Pay attention. <laughs> So what happens between the beat? Explain. It's, it's the beat is there. And then everything goes on. Everything goes on. You're not really thinking. You're not really feeling. You're not paying attention. You're not doing anything, but just being in that moment. The beat, boom. Then you have that space to live. And then boom. And when that final beat comes down, you're finished. It's the it's sort of the equivalent to, in a picture, the difference between the dark and the light. You, you've had yes. the... You have the positive and negative spaces. You've got a positive and negative musical space as well. You do. That's exactly what it is. You got to have both. You know, you need you need the beginning and you need the end, but you also need that that navigation in between. And you don't even have control of it. I want to explore performance for a moment and how important it is. Obviously, especially today, performance is more important than ever because nobody's really making any money off of selling records anymore. They're making right. it in performance. So when you perform, it is, again, abundantly clear that you own the stage. You have this ball of confidence within you. Where does that confidence come from? You've always had it since you were a kid. Where does it come from? I don't know. I guess it's I guess it's just knowing I can do what I do. I mean, I remember watching Elvis Presley. I was five and a half. You know, it's cemented in my brain. Um, we were watching the Ed Sullivan show. And Ed Sullivan, you know, you know, it was Sunday night, family entertainment. Everybody sits down, eight o'clock, there it is. And at the end, he brings out somebody for the youngsters. And he brought out Elvis Presley, and uh, he was doing Don't Be Cruel. I was five and a half. My eldest sister by nine years, 14 and a half, she was screaming. And I, I'm young, and I looked at her, and I'm thinking, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? And then I went into the TV, 
And I went in like a hypnotist. And in my head came the thought, clear as a bell, I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. And it never left me. I even used to go around at school, seven or eight, and stick with the recess teacher, Mrs. Denmark, link my arms with her and sing for her the whole time. So it's always been, it's always been what I do. I'm either telling a joke or doing a sketch or writing a poem or painting a picture or singing a song or playing something on the piano or it's just how I live. I got to communicate with you somehow. And whatever you want from me, be it a poem or a risque joke or a deep conversation, mystical or this, I will give that to you. I will share that with you. I'm kind of like the, the woman for all seasons, if you like. Well, you are, um, the phrase would be a jack of all trades, but you're a master of many of them, which is not, I'm an art. sure, of course you are. You're an artist on top of it, but I'm saying that you have the ability to move in many different directions within the art forms, plural, many different art forms that sometimes relate and sometimes don't. So poetry is related in a way to lyric writing. Lyric yes. writing is related in a way to poetry but they frequently are not the same. They're not lyrics and poems are not the same. And it's difficult to translate sometimes a poem into a song, but sometimes you can. So sometimes you can't. And I found that to be very true. Um, I have a poem book, you know, I'm on my second volume and I have a lyric book. And very often there's examples in both of them. It goes one way or the other. You, you look at a poem and you think, damn, boy, that can make a good song. Victim of circumstance from the former and become, uh, it was owed to circumstance as a poem and it became victim of circumstance. And I put both in the poetry book. That's not in this one. What I have in this book, I didn't have the two in here. Uh, I did that on the first one. I have two or three pieces that should have been songs. And as I went to write the song, it didn't end up in a song. It just didn't go in there, like between the beat. There's a few of them. And I ended up damaged, uh, damaged goods. There's a few of them. And I thought, okay, this is not a song. This is a poem. But sometimes in poems, that I, if I'm looking for inspiration sometimes, I look through my poetry book and I go, yes. And then I'll put that here and then start to change it wherever it needs to be changed to the meter of a song. And it does change form. When, yes. you, when you see it and you say yes, is it because of the title or the hook or is it something else? I go by titles very often. Mm -hmm. I either get that or a one-liner that keeps repeating itself, but I do go by titles. Even for poems, uh, the title tends to suggest, if it's a song, the title suggests what instrument you should write it on, what the tempo should be, what the feel should be. If it's a poem, the title suggests what you're feeling and why you want to write a song about that particular title. So it's kind of the same instinct, but slightly different shades. When you get an idea for a new song, where do you typically start? I know it's the title, but once you have that hook and you go, okay, I now have an idea for a song, where do you start? Do you start to develop some character in your head? Do you develop a uh, some kind of a story? Where do you where do you go typically? Yeah, most of the time. When I'm, when I'm writing by myself, I just think of a title and, and I think of the title for a reason and I'll write it down and I'll just, I'll look at that title and it suggests an entire storyline to me. I make up the story in my head or I've already lived the story. And a lot of times I go to the piano because it's my orchestra and it's full open, you know, sure. you can, and if it's more a rock, rock song, a basic rock song, I'll go to guitar 
because I'm not a very good guitar player. I'm not a failed guitar player, like I said. And it will come out basic, which is maybe what that title requires. Right. And often I'll go to the bass and I'll find a bass line, you know? So like I said, the title suggests what you should do with it. It does. But when I'm writing with my son, it's come across many different ways. Lots of times he gives me a riff and then he'll just say to me, I've only got, oh, he gave me the one on the, the devil in me, gave me a riff, basic uh, demo. And he said, this is called dance. I said, okay. I took it. I listened, listened, listened. And I defined what I needed to write about. And it became, do you dance? And it became very sort of a um, little bit rude. <laughs> a little bit near the knuckle. Because that's how I could write it. You know, when you're, you know how you get suggestive on the, uh, on the dance floor. You're allowed to do that. You mm -hmm. don't even have to deliver. You can just do it. It's just called flirting on the dance floor. So that's where I took it. But um, yeah, every every song is different. Some of them they just they just fly. You don't even know where it came from. Sometimes you just sit down and you just go, "What? Whose is this?" You know, you're like taking down dictation. That happens. Well, too. well, I've studied a lot of creative people, and I've spoken to a huge number of creative people, and many of my friends are in the same field. And so the question for me, which is excellent that you brought it up. Do you feel like you're a conduit for this artistry, that you're a vessel for it, as opposed to you're the originator of it? Many people do feel like it's coming from the universe, from God, wherever they think it's coming from. Do you feel the same? Many times you, a lot of times when I look at, say I've written a poem, and it's a lot of times at midnight, as you would have read, and I read it back and I think, who the hell wrote this poem? <laughs> She's not writing it, but it's like you, you give over, in my opinion, you give over to her a force and your channels are open and you just let it all in. It works through you. Yes, I'm doing it, but I let it, I let it come. It knocks on the door and I let it in. You open your channels. That's what I think most artists are talking about. You can't explain it completely, but you know it's coming through you and you've been chosen to be used for this artistic stuff to come through. So you just say, go, you know, hello. <laughs> Well, that's the the infamous phrase. It came like a bolt out of the blue. There's the idea came just fully formed, and there it is. You don't know where it came from, but somewhere oh. it's channeling through you. I don't know some of the language. I don't even. I I just think God, God. You know, and it's not even ego. You really back and go, boy, that's really good. And I don't talk that way. You know, even when I'm doing my novel, I'm doing my second novel now. But I I was working on that, and when I go back, if I leave it for like a week or something, I go back. Then I have to go back and reread maybe the last 10 pages. And I'm actually going, what happens next? So I've forgotten where I went. And mm. I'm reading like 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 the audience. I'm going, oh, I wonder what happens next. So that's great that I can disassociate. It feels like somebody else is working with you almost. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's great. It's a wonderful feeling. I recognized it a long time ago, and I just trust it. And I let it through. I let it shine through. Do you have a regular routine about your writing? Do you write at a certain time of the day every day? Do you write in a certain place? Or is it just catch as catch can? It depends where I am. If I'm at home or on the road, I have a space in my house. I live in a, a, a 15th century Elizabethan manor house. So it's got a lot of energies in it. And um, there's one room that I create in. And when you go in there, you're in a different time zone. You're just, the, the world does not exist. So yeah, that's, I love to be in there. If I'm on the road, I often write in the hotel room. I get a lot of ideas on the road because you're you're just in that space, aren't you? That it's nothing is real when you're on the road, you know? It's 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 a altered existence. Altered existence, I like that. 
that's a I that's write, a good title for something, isn't it? I think it's I don't know if it's a poem or a song. Altered existence. I like that. It's really wide open because that could be anything. That could be anything. Even your relationship could be in an altered existence. <laughs> Sorry, I always get things like this. I'm I'm pleased to know that during the middle of Story Beat, Susie's getting song and lyric and poetry ideas. <laughs> that, that's fantastic, uh, and and I'll look forward to it on your next album. <laughs> Don't remember the conversation. So, so there's nothing in particular that you do that's special or particular to go find an idea. It's just, you're just absorbing the atmosphere around you and letting it flow through yeah, you. Yeah, pretty much. And and I'm very much, I write about what's happened to me. And, you know, you have to always be a, awake to what's going on. You know, I have a lot of conversations with people and I kind of soak up. I get a lot of people coming to me with um, what's gone wrong in their life and we end up talking the going the distance and I soak that up I'm a good person to bounce off of um and I'm I'm the word I don't take my own advice I should but I'm a people person and that's where I get my inspiration from mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there is always as my friend fan in the book points it out you know there's always a little well of loneliness which I think comes from being one of five children and maybe needing a bit more than what I got because I admitted that I needed a bit more and then leaving home, you know, and going to London by myself. And there's always a little ball of loneliness there that probably will never, never get filled. And also I will always be vulnerable. And like that, it's one of my favorite poems, Toughen Up, that my father said to me, you got to toughen up. And I can't. And if I did toughen up, I would not be the artist I am. So when you're standing on a stage in front of 10,000 people, it's still you and your world at the same time. And they don't suddenly make you less lonely, do they? For the moment, for the but not, moment. But not in general. No, but when you walk off that stage, you step into the black pit. Mm -hmm. Come from this and it's silence and cold. And I don't ever take any substances when I go on stage. I don't take substances anyway, but I never have a drink. I'm stickler on that. I go up there with all my edge and all my need. And when I come down off that stage, I want my glass of champagne and I want it now. Because instead of crashing to the ground, you come down in stages. You know, you're right. The loneliest feeling in the world coming off stage. That's the loneliest feeling in the world is coming off stage because you went from this mass of humanity that was with you and now you're back on your own again. Yeah, it's really a strange feeling. It took me a long time to understand that when someone wins a huge award, like an Oscar or a Tony, something like that, that the next day they just go back to, the, you know, that that thing that they go through with the award ceremony and the accolades and the adulation and so on. They still have to then put their pants on the next morning and they've got sure. to take the trash out and all the rest of it. Sure. You know, there's that spotlights on you and they're screaming and applauding and you're doing your big exit. And then that's it. Done. But you, you must have people come visit you backstage. Yeah. Actually, I'm pretty much a, except for like places, certain like certain gigs, like the Opera House or the Royal Albert Hall, something like that, where you have to have a little bit of a do afterwards. I go quiet. I change my clothes. I have my glass of champagne and I go back to the hotel room and I don't want any noise, not even a TV on. Total silence. And the silence then is golden to me. I guess I'm processing everything. I'm coming back down because... Frame can distort reality. It can do. So I'm coming back down to reality. It's down to reality. Reality's not up. Reality's down. That's the fantasy. I'm living the dream, doing what I do. You 
this that you're talking about, which is fascinating to me, because there's so few of us really in the history of the planet, of the billions of people that live on the planet, very few people have had the experiences you've had uh, where you go perform every night in front of lots of people. And that then is evident in Through My Heart, in the poems that you write so deeply about your your actual experiences and they, it comes out you're not writing about stuff about the, the things that you see no you're talking about the things that you feel and you're experiencing sure. so when you go to your hotel room at night and you are alone and you're starting to think about what you're going to write in a poem how does the what you just performed is how does that reflect through or how does your day-to-day reflect through how do you how do you channel it through? Is it again coming from the universe or is it just this well of stuff coming up out of you? I think I am just one of these people that lives through their heart and I do when I can't help it. You know, I don't know how not to have my heart on my sleeve. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how not to do that. Just the way I've always been. But like I always say, the strength is, and people call me tough. That's such a dichotomy. Yes, I'm a survivor. Yes, I'm a strong girl, tough cookie, blah, blah, blah. But that's because I'm not afraid to go into the pain. And life is full of pain for everybody. Let's not pretend it's not, you mm-hmm. know? Sure. Get hurt. Sure, we have broken relationships, broken families, and it's painful. So life is hard, but I don't shy away from the pain. I will just go right into it like it's a fire. There's the fire there. It's going to burn me. Okay. Off I go. I walk through it. Burn, 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 burn. Come to the other side, brush myself off and keep walking. Do you think of pain as a an artistic tool of kind? Yes. I, In fact, I have it written in my lyric book. And probably it's going to be the next one I wrote because it keeps coming up. Pain is the best architect. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and more ideas flow pain is the best architect wow That's a, nobody better nick it <laughs> that's a good one that's that, a good one that's a really good one so m- most of your poetry if not every bit of your poetry reads as if you are actually emotionally purging your soul that's what it reads like yeah. and that is the very definition of catharsis the emotional purging is catharsis i i'm just wondering is Does it give you catharsis? Do you feel relief after you've written a poem? Do you feel emotionally relieved? Yes. Oh, God, yes. And then I can read it again and again, and I go, thank God it's out. Same as if um, I need to, I'm I'm very much like that. If I need to scream at somebody, I'm going to scream, and then I'm done. I don't hold on to it. If I'm mad at you, I'm going to scream at you, then I'll say, let's go for a drink. If I'm going to cry, I'm going to cry. I'm not going to hold in it. I cry, then I'm done. If I need to write a poem, I'm going to write it, then I'm done. Get it out. It's poison to stay in you any of the stuff is poison and you mustn't do it poison is a drink you should never drink alone Uh oh there's another line (laughs) i told you this happens to me (laughs) well it's uh, it's my delight to have it happen while i'm talking to you (laughs) do you ever use a rhyming dictionary or is it all out of your head um not a writing dictionary but every yeah a rhyming dictionary every now and again if i've got Sure, every every writer does. If there's a particular line that is a stinker of a rhyming word to rhyme with, and I don't want to change the line, but here's what happens to me. I'll look for a rhyme, and then I won't use that, but another word will come to me from reading 
the different thing that I go, oh, boom, oh, God, why didn't I think of that before? So it leads you in a certain direction. But I don't think there's a writer exists that doesn't use a little help sometimes, mm-hmm. like I said, when you want to hold on to a line. Well, even Stephen Sondheim used his rhyming dictionary every day. Sure, you got to. You got to sometimes. If you're hooked on a line, that's it. How, how long does it typically take you to write a poem? Do they just come out or does it sometimes take you days? Well, they're really painful ones. You'll write in a flurry. And then you'll go back and you'll look at it again. And you might edit a little bit. You might think, wait a minute, that's a bit awkward there. And then sometimes you'll look at it, want to edit and think, no, that awkwardness is wonderful because it's raw, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, sometimes I do tweak. I do tweak, but the really good ones just fly out. They do. It's like it's like throwing up. I don't know how else to say it. You don't know where it comes from, but then there it is. And it can't change it. It's <laughs> same with songwriting, yes? Yeah. But it was fascinating in the documentary to, to listen to Mike Chapman talk about, you know, you you meet him. He says, I've got an idea. And he goes off. And a few hours later, there's a song. Right. Yeah. It's literally right. few, it's like literally a couple of hours later. There's the song. This is and how it, it happens. And it's a huge hit. It turns into a huge yeah. hit. This is how it happens. You get inspired and you kind of know it. The good stuff, you know, it when you're doing it. I know when it's a good poem. I know when it's a so-so poem. I know when it's a good song. You feel it like that. From the first second you sit down. I think that that's an accurate way to describe it. You feel it more than you think it. We're definitely in the passion business, the guts business, not in the intellectual business. I, I do want to speak for a moment about your stage work. I was completely and utterly blown away when I saw clips of you doing Annie Oakley and clips from Tallulah Who because your stage voice is exquisite and totally different from your rock voice. It's yes. still you, but it's but it's it was unexpected. I didn't expect to hear what came out of you. And I'm wondering, have you ever thought about doing an album of nothing but standard Broadway songs? That would be interesting. That yes, would be it interesting. would. It is. It was very natural to me. Um, I mean, Annie Get Your Gun was fantastic. Yeah, whatever I'm doing, I'm kind of like musical actress or actress. I kind of don't act. I kind of become, mm-hmm. which is my role. You know, Ron Howard said to me, about season three, it must have been, we were talking, we were in Arnold's and we had a break in filming. And he, he said to me, Susie, he said, whatever you do, don't take acting lessons. And I went, oh, I said, why are you saying that? He said, because you're natural and it would ruin it. And I take that as a big compliment. That is a big compliment. And even doubly so when you realize what he went on to do, making as many movies as he's made. And I also asked him, because we we email all the time, we're in good contact. And I said, I'm just going to pick your brain. I'm curious. Because I was that was my first ever acting job. So I said, sure, I was already a star and stuff, but my first ever acting. So green. I said, did it ever feel, first of all, that I was new to the show? We said, no. It's like you were always there. I said, did I feel like a new actress? He said, no, just you were there. You felt like you belonged. So that's, again, a big compliment. Yeah. You, you, everything you've done, you've been a natural at. I try to do what I know I can do, and I don't want to do what I don't think I can do. But there are so, my point is, is that there are very few people who can do what you do, and that you're a natural at it. You didn't, which is a gift. I mean, you've had this gift your whole life. And it is a gift. Yeah, I've talked with other performers about this. Um, there's a million good singers out there, there's a million great actresses, all this, you know, uh, and one person makes it, another doesn't. There's all these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that have to come together. Mm-hmm. There's a talent thing, which a lot of people have. There's a charisma factor. That's important. There's the X factor. There's coming along at the wrong, the right time. There's also 
hearing opportunity knock and opening the door, many different things come into it and the self-belief. I'm going to ask you the two famous questions I ask everybody. So in all of your experiences in the business of show, um, can you share with us uh, any of your experiences that are weird, quirky, offbeat, strange, or just plain funny? There's a strange one that I like to talk about because in all my years, this was weird. Um, we were in Ekaterinburg in Russia, which is where they killed Nicholas and Ag Alexandra and the family at a place called the Blood Palace, okay? Uh, and I was always fascinated with that story. And we drove past it on the way to the venue and the, the interpreter said, and he told us, there's the place. I went, wow, there's, wow, history happened here. So anyway, got to the venue, did the sound check. I'm in my room and I could see the Blood Palace from my window. And it just put me in this strange frame of mind, you know, that this horrible tragedy happened there. Anyway, we went on stage and we did about two songs. And somebody at the, at the first they were sitting, somebody got up from the audience and just walked up straight up to the stage with this big bouquet of flowers. It wasn't a thing like this, like this. And they went like this to me, like here. And I had to, I had to stop the song, reach down, get him, and I put him on the drum riser. Every five minutes or six minutes, somebody else would walk up. <laughs> this happened all the way through my show. So the end of the show, the entire riser is full of flowers. And I'm feeling this strange feeling. They, they were going crazy, but at the same time, there was this unbelievable escapism that I think they were feeling. And it was a great show anyway. I went home. I didn't speak after the show. I said, take me to my room. I got back to my room by myself. I laid down on my bed and I cried my eyes out. And I've never done that before. I cried my eyes out. And I found myself saying out loud, thank you, God, for allowing me to make those people happy for an hour and a half. This is what it did to me. This is the strangest experience. Wow. Never had since. Yeah. It was just a way they came up, you know? Wow. It almost feels like a bit of a religious experience is what it sounds it, like. It was really strange. And then I read the comments from the band the next day on the internet, and I hadn't discussed it with them. And they all said, what a spiritual show that was. So I was not the only one to have felt this. They all felt it. It went above and beyond a gig. Can't explain it. And, it just happened. And it's never happened again. Not that way. I've had the lifting up moments many times. I mean, there was a recent one. I called my husband after the Belfast gig about three weeks ago. And I said, I can't believe it's 72. 72 years old. I did what I call the best gig of my career. Wow. It's just, just it's not possible. But I had to say it because it was true. And the reason it was so great was because for some reason, there was a lot of 18-year-old people all the way up to 70. So big, widespread. And halfway through the show, these younger element, they just got up and they rushed the stage, a lot of them female, and they were screaming. And I was looking behind me wondering who the hell came on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, I was almost afraid. I thought, God, where do I go from here? They made it go so high, I had to try to control them. It was like being 23 and number one. And I was 72. <laughs> fantastic that that is oh, that's beyond awesome that's just just fantastic to hear about i wish i'd seen it you know that's it's great yeah all right so last question for you today Susie. you've already given us an enormous amount of advice but i'm wondering if you have a single solid piece of advice or a tip that you like to give people who are starting out in the business 
uh, as to how they can make their careers grow, how they can improve themselves, et cetera, or even someone who's in a little bit and trying to get to that next level. Okay. It starts with, for just for me, this is only humbly speaking, it starts with the need. Number one, the need to be in this business, the need, you have to need it, the need, need, I need this. Okay. Then you have to find your little light, whatever that may be. If it's singing, if it's songwriting, if it's this guitar, if it's performing, you have to find it. You have to locate it. And that just means getting in touch with yourself. Find out what your talent is. Work out and you know it. You know it. Whether you have that X factor or not, you should know it. You should know it. If you have it, you know it. If you don't, you wonder. Best bit of advice. So far, so if you're winning so far, then you work out what your area is going to be. You work out who you're going to take inspiration from to hone your craft and if you're going to be in a band you do every single gig that god sent you okay and if you are in a dive playing in front of a drunk in a bar and you can make him turn around and look at you you did it and stay focused stay professional do not get stoned or drunk to go on stage and always remember you need them probably more than they need you uh, you know, you've just basically laid out the course for anyone who can do anything in the arts, in any part of the arts. And yet what you're talking about is is truly fundamental and so smart and 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 learned the hard way. You learned it coming up in the what they call the school of hard knocks. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, Susie Quattro, I cannot thank you enough for this fantastic our story beat and i wish you so much continued success and with the your i'll be happy to read your next uh, poetry book because this one was just fun to read it was just and 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 moved me i mean it was very moving to me that's the whole thing when you, when somebody gets something out of it then it's the artistic cycle complete thank you so much for being on story beat thank today. you so much steve we'll see hope to see you again soon and so we've come to the end of today's story beat if you like this episode, won't you please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great StoryBeat episodes to you. StoryBeat is available on all major podcast apps and platforms, including Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many others. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden. And may all your stories be unforgettable.